Okay. Uh, here we are in First Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. This is where we are at. And uh, as we get into this chapter, Paul begins to shift gears uh, into a discussion about, uh, in, in the first part of this chapter, uh, into a, a discussion about how we live our lives and how we do that in a way to honor and to serve God. Um, that actually begins in the toward the end of chapter three, and we'll kind of pick up there. Uh, but in this, there's both spiritual and practical disciplines that are discussed, those things that we can uh, practically do and those things that we can take away uh, spiritually. Uh, one, the spiritual fueling the physical, obviously. Uh, turn with me, if you will, as we get started this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. And this is the heart and, and the, the gist of what Paul is encouraging and exhorting uh, the church there in Thessalonica. And ultimately, this is what the Lord would exhort us to in Hebrews 13, verse 16. He says, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So we have this idea that we are to do good, that we are to communicate, live in such a way uh, that, that represents Christ well. And, and with those kinds of sacrifices, with living a lifestyle, as we're going to talk about here this morning, uh, God is well pleased. He's represented well. He is honored. And so uh, if we begin here, let's, let's read in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, furthermore, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you have, uh, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Now, the term uh, abound here, I mean, it's, it's a superfluous, it's above and beyond. I mean, this is, this is an abundance, an overflowing of something. That's what Paul is praying, and this is the instruction that he's giving um, as he's instructed them, and, and he's, we've looked at that, his manner of coming in and those sorts of things that have been established, how he uh, worked day and night so that he could preach the gospel but not be a burden to anybody. And and the care, the care and the concern that he showed, all of those things being part of that instruction, but not just that, the instruction of truth. So he tells them, this is what we've instructed you, and now he pleads with them to abound, to have an abundance of, uh, the disciplines, those principles of godly living that they'd received from him. Um, he exhorts them to abound in those, to let them be the natural, normal part of life. And so, in other words, they were to develop this as a natural overflow, that this is part of who they are to the extent that that's what comes out. The abundance of their heart would be changed, uh, therefore resulting in a different practice and conduct all of those things being a reflection and a testimony of what Christ has done in them, um, it would become who they were instinctively. And that's the exhortation for you and I. Disciples are simply, the term disciple simply means somebody who follows a student of someone. To the extent that we would learn and know and understand uh, our master so well that that is who we mimic. That's, that is our natural go-to. That is the way we operate. And for us, that's the goal, to be those disciples, those students of Christ in that way. Now, it's normal. This is Paul, and this is how he operates. This should be normal instruction within the church. 
this is normative or it should be normative. And, and I think that all together, uh, part of the reason that this discipleship model isn't discussed in the church is because when you talk about discipleship, there are going to be things that you should be doing and things that you shouldn't be doing. And the church, at least in Western culture, has really shied away from any explanation or, or discussion around what we ought to be doing. We've bought into, in large part, this relativistic model. Now, we don't want to become those who are legalists, and nor do we want to lay out a foundation of works that we would somehow maintain or, or continue to merit favor with God. And that's not the goal. But the goal is this, that we would please God, that we would honor him in everything that we do. Knowing that Scripture is taught that there is a difference before and after our coming to faith. So there is a discussion about personal holiness and those kinds of things. And this should be normal instruction. In Matthew chapter 28, turn with me there, Matthew 28, verse 20. As Jesus gives the Great Commission, we, we need to begin here because this is foundational. This is uh, what we are sent out to do. And, and I think that there's a growing misunderstanding or misappropriation of what Christ is commanding us here. In Matthew chapter tw uh, 28, verse 20, uh, I'm going to begin in verse 19. Jesus speaking to his disciples, ultimately to you and I, commissioning believers. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now here, we have this discussion uh, elsewhere as we look at, the, at the, uh, the, this commission. Oh, it has a struggle. We find we're told to make disciples students, followers of. And here, Jesus doesn't use that term, but you look at the description, right? He, We go and we teach them, and then we teach them to observe. There's obviously a, a response of faith. We go and we teach the nations. We baptize those who come to faith. And we do so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't end there. We're not interested in converts. We're interested in disciples. Teach them, he says, to, to do, to observe, all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's the takeaway. The Great Commission doesn't stop at sharing the gospel. The Great Commission ends at the establishment of disciples. And so here is Paul giving normal instruction to this young church. This is how we live. This is how we conduct ourselves. This is how we honor the Lord and represent him in everything that we do. He's making disciples. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, as we look at uh, this, this chapter on faith, we find that, that it is crucial that we would trust. And I want to bring this up because as we move through here, we have to understand a couple of things. That if we're talking about discipleship, that God, in fact, knows better than we do. He is the creator. He gets to establish what is right and wrong and has since eternity past. And so, therefore, it is a submission and a faithful uh, trust that we would yield ourselves to what God has said is right and yield ourselves to those things that God said is wrong. Who are we trusting? I, I, I talked about last week that we have come to, in America, uh, this point of self-censoring. And ultimately, I think that it's a, in some respects, it's a lack of 
faith. I don't trust that God is in fact right because everybody around me or whoever, what the perception that I have is that everybody around me is against what I'm saying. First of all, that's probably a false perception. If you, if you breach the conversation, you're probably going to find that you're not alone in the room with a perspective that is consistent with God's word. We just live in a world where those who who are speaking the loudest have the largest platform. And so what we hear all the time, what we perceive is that we are in the minority. Probably not the case. Okay, but he says here in Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, first of all, that he is, that he is what? That he is what he said he is, that he is the creator, that he exists. And if he exists, that he is everything that he has revealed of himself in Scripture. So that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we build with those things that endure, there is a reward associated with that. The inverse is also true. Because we know from Scripture that God has told us that he is just. And therefore, he can't condone sin. Therefore, if he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, he's also a rewarder of those who reject him. There is a reaping of what we sow. This normal instruction of discipleship reaches that topic. That whether I'm a believer or a non-believer, how I live and conduct myself will yield from God, a response. And I don't know how else to phrase it. It's probably not absolutely theologically correct, but I think we understand, right? We're going to reap what we sow. We'll reap the blessing and the benefit associated with godly living, or we'll reap the opposite, the consequence that may be associated with it. And if we don't know Christ apart from Jesus Christ, the ultimate consequence is separation from God in hell for eternity. And that is the biblical position. So not only are we supposed to create disciples, that's the commission that we've been given, preach the gospel, bring them uh, to, to faith, which is ultimately what God is doing, but then we take part in their establishment as disciples. We have to trust that God is in fact right. That even when the world around us is clamoring for things against and contrary to the principles of Scripture, we stand firm that God is in fact who he is. In Colossians, if you'll turn there with me, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and nine and 10. Paul, again, writing to another church that he has been instrumental, used by God in establishing. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here is Paul. He's praying for this church just as he would for the Thessalonian church, just as we pray, I pray for you, and we pray for one another, that we would be established, that we would know, as he says here, that we'd have, we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? So that we could walk worthy. So that we could be those who would represent it well. 
When we're talking about walking worthy, it isn't worth in the sense that we're trying to somehow become acceptable. But it's doing that which would not shame the name of God. Walking in a way, conducting ourselves in a way that is consistent with our profession of faith so that God's name is not profaned. That's the worth that's being discussed. God is worthy. His truth is worthy. All of those things remain true, whether I do a good job or whether I do a bad job. But there are those who are outside looking in, and what do they see in our representation of the gospel of Christ? Is it honoring or is it muddied? We have the example of Jesus Christ, who, uh, as he lived this life, obviously, supernaturally, being God in the flesh, lived it perfectly. Lived it in a way that was completely submitted. Lived it in a way where everything that he did was bold, but it was also merciful. Right? He spoke with authority, and they were astonished at his authority, yet Christ was meek. He was humble to the extent that he would come and bear the cross. We see this balance within the example of Christ, powerful yet meek, bold and authoritative, yet very humble. And for us to imitate Christ and to follow the exhortation of Paul does not necessitate of us weakness or cowardice. And I think that sometimes we have this misconception because Jesus said to turn the other cheek and all those things, and he did. Jesus did say to turn the other cheek. But we're also told to stand fast in the liberty where Christ has set us free. That we are to be uncompromising and unwilling to change when we're confronted. That we should contend for the faith. That's not a turning of the other cheek. The turning of the other cheek, if we take that in, in, in the context in which Christ is conveying it to us, is that we personally don't take offense Right, that I would, as Christ did, while they are yet sinning against me, while they are yet persecuting, while I'm experiencing hardship at their hands, I would turn the other cheek. We're still following Christ's example. But it never means that we would withdraw or compromise the truth. We also find an example from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 2. Turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to read through this, and I'm not going to make a lot of comment because it, I think it's fairly obvious what Paul is doing here. We also have also established Paul's entering in, that he was uh, authoritative, that he was bold in his pronunciation of the gospel and all those things, and, and even faced heavy persecution for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. But I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heavy, excuse me, in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should uh, have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. 
I just want to pause there. Here is Paul conveying his heart and desire for them. He says, I don't want to be heavy-handed. But I have to stand firm in the truth. We have to confront sin. We can't condone it. We have to take a position on it the same as God would take on it. So I'm writing these things. And First and Second Corinthians address a lot of problems. This is a church that had all kinds of things happening that should never have been happening. And so Paul corrects them, and he's very stern with them. But that's not the attitude that he wants to have with them. He wants to be uh, very gentle with them to whatever degree that he can. Verse 5, but if I have, uh, but if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, in, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to, to a man is this punishment which was inflicted to many, so that contrarywise you ought all you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So here's Paul, and and, and there's this discussion about taking those and, and causing grief, he says. He says, you haven't grieved me. I, I'm sure that, that Paul is, in fact, grieved. I mean, he, he has expressed that multiple times throughout the New Testament. But what he's saying is that ultimately the offense isn't against me. The offense is against somebody else. It's against the Lord. We're going to talk about that this morning. And, and, and so as he goes through and he talks about this, he says, listen, I'm not going to overcharge you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to come down on you because there is somebody else who is giving judgment uh, sufficient to the man, verse 6, is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Right? That here it is. That the church itself should be the mechanism in many respects of discipline at the hands of God. And we, we see that model throughout Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18. It isn't just the elders. Ultimately, the, the discipline that happens within the body of Christ is a function of the church, the congregation. It isn't a function necessarily of the eldership or those who are leading the church. So here it is. It's been applied by many. Right? That somebody would come in, they would be confronted with their sin, they're unresponsive to that sin. So what does the church do? They follow the instruction of Jesus Christ himself, and they say, listen, we're going to treat this person as an unsaved person, as a heathen. They're no longer in fellowship in the sense that they're not believers. We're treating them as if they're not. Why? Because their response to, to correction is such that it would betray where their heart lies. Now, the person may, in fact, be saved. I mean, I would hope that they were. But their unrepentance means that we deal with them as such. Now, the, And the end goal in all of this is restoration, is bringing them back in. It would be that model that we read about in, for, in Galatians chapter 5, where we bear one another's burdens. Right, That has been leading up to this next step of discipline where we're going to deal with you as, as unbelievers. Right, so here you look at the ceremonies, the, the sacraments that God has instituted within the church. We have baptism and we have communion. Now, we don't practice communion as much as we should, and that's fully on me. That aside, right, communion is established for those who are within the body of Christ, and here we are removing you from that fellowship. We're treating you as if you're an unbeliever. It is a significant statement to say we're not going to serve you communion any longer. It should be a significant statement. And it should be that the fellowship of the church is, is such that there's a desire to be in right relationship. So here's Paul, right? 
and he, he's being bold. He's being uh, forthright and, and honest in his, but he's not condemning. He's exercising authority in humility and meekness with the end that the person would be restored with a hope and a desire that they would abound in, in, in repentance and come back to Christ and ultimately be received by the church at whole as at a large back into fellowship. Paul's exhortation, what he beseeches them, what he begs them, is that they would abound more and more in those things that they had received, that, that they might abound more and more in understanding how they ought to, how they should conduct themselves. Now let's jump back into chapter 3, the last two verses, 12 and 13 of chapter 3, because Paul sort of begins this theme of instruction there. He says in those verses, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable and holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul's prayer and, and, uh, and exhortation, as it were, his instruction is that they would grow, they would increase in love. Now, jump with me down to chapter 4, verse 9. He says, But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Right? So there's this instruction. This is part of what the Holy Spirit instructs us in. But for the Thessalonian church, as we've seen throughout the first few chapters of this book, this is normative for them. This is how they're already operating. Right? You guys have been instructed by the Holy Spirit. God himself has taught you how to love, and he's continuing to teach you how to love. So Paul is here exhorting them, reminding them, continue to abound in those things. Don't neglect the, the don't fall back on your laurels, as it were, in the areas where we're already doing well. But he's like, you guys, you guys are doing great in loving people. You're already there. God has already taught you those things. So there's this, this exhortation, and that's where we're at and where they are at. And it's where we should find ourselves that it is the normal outflow, that it is our normal mode of operation. In Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That you may approve things that are excellent, that you uh, that you may by sincere and without offense, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Hear this, this prayer that they would abound more and more in, the, in love, and that being an establishment of them in godly principle, just as we read in Thessalonians. Now, the example, of, obviously, of how we ought to love is in Jesus Christ himself, uh, we find in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is it. This is how he's shown us his love. By sacrifice, by doing, by meeting a need that we ourselves could never have met. Romans 5 eight tells us, is interesting, I was reading something, I was reading a statement of faith about an organization uh, 
a couple weeks ago, and they made the statement uh, that, what did they say? They basically said, this is how God showed our, his love for us. And they, they said, the, the way that God showed his love for us is by our election, by choosing us. I'm like, you know, kind of reminds me that the scripture doesn't say that at all. It says in Romans 5a that God commendeth, that God in fact shows us his love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it just stood as a stark contrast, right? Here we, here we are, rather than taking the word of God for what it says and letting our theology line up and because we're instructed by the word of God, let's impose our theology on truth. Now, there's probably some further discussion, and, and I think we could get there from here, but you see the stark difference? That's not what God said. That's not how he said he showed himself for us or how, how he showed his love toward mankind. He showed his love toward mankind and that he gave his son. And it's interesting because those who would ascribe to that would say that, no, that, that atonement is limited to only those that God chose. And they would have to eliminate uh, or reinterpret what God's word says in other places, like John 3.16 is an example, because the world can't mean the world at that point. It has to mean only those that God chose. Yet if we just take what the word of God says, we have this very clear-cut meaning that God loved everybody. That he sent his son to be an unlimited atonement. But it also says that unless you by faith receive it, it's not effective for you. Faith has to be operative. The end result of growing in love, in understanding that the love that God has shown us, because the foundational understanding is that God loved us while we were yet sinners. But right, that's how he showed his love for us. That's the condition that we were in. The establishing effect is this, that we understand atonement, that we understand that Christ paid for something that we could never pay. That an exchange was made, and as a result of that, there is a thankfulness, a rejoicing at what he has finished. There's an establishing effect of understanding God's love. That it roots us in that relationship. And that's what Paul is praying here. But that we would increase more and more in love toward one another. This representation of what is inside coming out. That we're abounding in it to the extent that, that it is a natural overflow for us. And as a, as a result of that, to the end, he says in verse 13, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, that we would be rooted in that relationship, in the holiness, in the representation of him. And we're, we're going to spend some time talking about that this morning. Right in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 25 through 27, is Paul is talking about marriage and using that as an example of the gospel of Christ. He tells us, uh, a couple of things here. Let me get to Rome, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, 
that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So here is Christ. When we talk about the atonement, the propitiation, the, the death of Christ in our place, and this exchange of our unrighteousness for his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Right, that's exactly what he did, that he would give himself for his bride so that they might be set apart, they might be sanctified and purified, declared righteous, justified is the theological term. We studied that in great detail throughout Galatians. But that's where we stand. That's what he has done. In John chapter 15, Jesus would give some instruction to his disciples as he's uh, preparing them for his absence. And in this uh, three chapters of, of the Gospel of John, we have sort of a monologue of Jesus where he's just simply instructing his disciples in 14, 15, and 16. But he says in uh, John 15, beginning in verse 12 and into verse 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So you and I as believers, the exhortation and the command of Christ is that we would love. John chapter 3, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21 tells us that. It continues in that John hits this idea of love over and over and over in all of his epistles and in his gospel as he quotes Christ in those very things. 1 John chapter 3 is this discussion about a practical expression of love. If we see our brother have need, listen, we're not going to just love in word, we're going to love in word and in deed just as Christ did as he laid his life down for us, that we might be sanctified, that we might be purified. In John chapter 15, as he continues on here in verse 13, not only did he tell us to love as he has loved, unconditionally, sacrificially, he gives us this, this statement, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he goes on and he tells us in the next verse, you are my friends. I'm going to lay my life down for you. But this is what I'm going to do. This is the overflow of love. This is the establishment that here, if God would love us that much, that he would give us an abundance of understanding in that love so that it would overflow out of us. That we would see the loss around us in such a way that we would want to preach the gospel to them, that we'd want to establish truth with them, that they might know the very love of God that we have experienced. Not only that, but within the church, there would be this overflow of love and this desire for further establishment. Just as Paul is giving us that example here. So he prays first that they would grow in love. And, and there is this, this acknowledgement that they're doing a good job about that. And as we studied through these earlier chapters, we see that, uh, and not only that, but as we study through uh for example, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul talks about, he says, listen, you're not taking care of me, Corinthians. The churches in Macedonia are taking care of me. They're the ones that are sending, they're, they're poor. I mean, the Thessalonian church was poor. He says, yet they're the ones that are supporting me. They're, they're taking care of my needs as an expression of their love, sacrificing even to taking care of so that I might be about the business of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. This is something that they're doing well in. And they're meeting, they're, they're doing it in such a way that it's an overflow of their realization of the love of Christ. We have to understand 
our atonement, the, the substitutionary death, and that should inspire us to thankfulness and rejoicing and a reciprocation of that love and obedience. He goes on and he begins to charge them. He says in verse uh, 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For you know what commandments, and that word simply means charge. These are the things that I told you to do uh, that we gave you by the Lord Jesus. In verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you may abstain from fornication. Now the word, I, I want to talk about sanctification for just a moment. It, it means moral purity. Now there's, there's two things that happen in sanctification. right? There is this setting aside, that we are this setting aside, and that there's this growing in the image or the representation of Christ. But there's also this understanding that it is a, our moral purity, is our setting aside to be a peculiar people, to be different. They're very closely related, but they're two distinct things. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, uh, God tells us that as those that he has uh, saved, that he has called, uh, all kinds of discussion to be had there, but he says uh, this, that ultimately, in Romans eight twenty nine, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate. And, and he defines what we're predestinated to, right? That when, when we're called, when we're foreknown and we're called, we're brought into God's, uh, one of his people, the predetermined plan is that God would make us like Christ. That is the end goal. That is his end game in regard to you and I and developing us spiritually. Who he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed or molded, shaped into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, in my opinion, that's probably one of the clearest statements on regard to sanctification, what it looks like. We're going to be pressed into this mold shaped by the image of Christ so that we might look like him, that we might represent him, that we might uh, be a clearer and clearer picture as we walk with him longer and longer of who he is, his love and concern, what he has accomplished on the cross. Now, there's a twofold in, intention in what Paul is saying here in this in these couple of verses. He, he talks about, number one, there's this general sanctification, right? This is the will of God, even your sanctification. But that's sort of a, an insertion. It's a, it, the, the, right, the, the will of God would be surrounding your personal holiness, your moral purity. That it's his will that you would be strong in those particular things. And all he's simply doing is going on and giving some, uh, some instruction about that. And, and one of those things is that we should abstain from fornication, right? Abstaining from sexual immorality. And the word fornication means all kinds of sexual immorality, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's actual uh, prostitution or all of those kinds of things. Whatever it may be, adultery, all of those things fall in there. It's a broad term that encompasses all kinds of uh, of sexual activity that is outside of the definition of of marriage, because that's the only appropriate outlet according to God. So here we have that description and that understanding. But it's twofold. This general moral purity, first and foremost, in First Peter uh, chapter one, First Peter chapter one, verses thirteen through sixteen. Says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, 
be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So there's this quotation from the Old Testament. More than once, God tells the nation of Israel, be holy as I am holy. Which is a pretty tall order. He's telling us that the standard of righteousness, of holiness that is expected, is equal to mine. All of that illustrating our inability. That is, Romans would conclude, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory, the holiness, the righteousness of God. Therefore, we're in desperate need of Christ. Which is by his design, that is, how he intended, in many respects, to use Israel as an example so that we might understand as Gentiles our desperate need for him. So there's this quotation there, but he says, listen, you and I, we need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need to be sober and thoughtful, clearly thinking to the hope to the end of grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Christ. So there's some reference to the second coming or our death and, and seeing Christ in his holiness, wherever that happens. As obedient children... We don't fashion ourselves according to the form of lust in our ignorance. There is this idea of putting off and then therefore putting on. Right? We don't fashion ourselves. I don't dress like, I don't think like, I don't talk like, I don't act like I used to act. You might dress the same. That might be an overstatement. But you understand what he's saying here. There's a difference. And the difference is simply that I would be holy as God is holy. I would think and take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. The way God calls sin, I would, by faith, call sin, whether I agree or not, whether culture and society agrees or not. I would stand firm upon that truth. I would represent him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, You are a chosen generation. Right? And that word generation, it means a chosen people, a chosen race that we as the people of God are chosen specifically uh, and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this twofold, this general, right, this, this abstaining from sexual immorality, in the immediate context, that is absolutely true, and that is part of our, but it's only one facet of our sanctification, of our personal holiness. In general, what Paul is talking about, and the, the context bears this out, because it goes through and he talks about several other things, not just fornication. What does our personal holiness look like? Well, in the area uh, regarding sexuality, it is in a biblical context that we would take what God has given and prescribed and keep it in its, per, in, in its correct context. It would be enjoyable and and beneficial within marriage and within marriage alone. Marriage as God has defined it, man and woman. Anything outside of that is immorality, is sexual immorality. It's contrary to holiness. Therefore, we can't be a chosen generation because we're, we're not walking in consistency. We're, we're just like everybody else. We're fashioning ourselves like the world around us. And then more, more specifically, or more generally, rather, this... Uh, overarching look at moral purity of being conformed to the image of Christ. Both of these are applicable in our 
context and in our text this morning, and we need to understand that that's what Paul is doing. He's talking about sanctification, about being like Christ in every area. He goes on verse 4, and he continues to talk about it. This, and both of these contexts are, are both applicable. Uh, we're going to talk about it in a more general context because I think that's the bigger picture. He says uh, in verse 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel and sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, uh, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Now, that, that term vessel, it literally means equipment or stuff. Right, that we would take what we have and we would that we would use it in a way that is consistent, that we would know how to possess it and use it in sanctification, in purity and honor, in correct representation of God. In this context, it's talking about our bodies, our self, how we would behave. In first, excuse me, second Timothy. Uh, just a few pages back here, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 20 through 21. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man, therefore, so there's this discussion about being vessels, some honor, honorable, some dishonorable, some, uh, you know, are the gold and some are the, you know, in many respects, there's a, a reflection of the body of Christ here. They're going to be those who are in the body of Christ, but they're not believers. They're going to be those in the body of Christ, and they have a somewhat less, quote-unquote, glamorous use. Right there, there are those that are brought out, they're the gold and all those things, and, and they, for whatever reason, God has put them and called them into a position that is more recognizable. They're less utilitarian in some respect. God is sovereign in all of that. But he goes on in the next verse, and he says, if a man, so here's this comparison made between these vessels and now people. If a man, therefore, purge himself from these, right? If he, all, if, he, if he works in sanctification with the Lord and is conformed to the image of Christ, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet or useful, ready for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So if we're going to know how to possess our vessel, our conduct our life, our self, our bodies in a way that is consistent with the forgiveness that we've received, consistent with the holiness of God as he has defined it. If we're going to do that, and it says that we're going to abstain, and I want to go back to the previous verse, abstain literally means to choose not. It's a conscious decision. So there are going to be all kinds of things, not simply fornication, that we are going to abstain from as a result of choosing to walk in obedience to the Lord. I'm going to choose not to do that. I've shared this before, but this, for me, this is a point of personal application. I choose not to consume alcohol, not because I think it's sinful, but because it's a stumbling block to many, and, and it's part of the witness that I hold with the people that I want to hold witness with. Like I said, I don't think that it's sinful. I've had that discussion many times, but I'm going to abstain from that. That's a personal choice, but there are certain things that we're going to, like, like sexual immorality, that we're going to abstain from, period, because God says, thou shalt not. 
Therefore, we're going to abstain from, we're going to choose, as I said, those who are going to please God, it's going to take some faith that he is in fact right, that he has said, this is how we're going to operate. And so I'm going to choose not to do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, flee fornication. Every man that, for every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. Now, there isn't a degree of sin or any understanding like that to be had here. But you're going to reap directly the consequences of sexual immorality within your own body, potentially. Uh, so there's some discussion about that. Now, we're going to flee fornication, though. That's the key part. And he goes on and he says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know what the sign above the door, that maybe it wasn't above the door, but out on the temple, you know what it said? It said, Holiness to the Lord. In other words, that the outside and everything that happens within this building, this structure, would be something that is reflective of the holiness of God. And here is Paul telling you and I that our bodies, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, are that very temple. Therefore, holiness to the Lord in the way that we conduct ourselves. And that's exactly what he says. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That everything that happens inside and outside would be reflective of our conformity to his image. That we would, as Romans 12 says, Romans chapter 6, boy, I keep hitting twice here, sorry, or maybe more. Romans chapter 6 tells us that as we have therefore yielded our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, now yield them to God as instruments of righteousness which is this laying down of our life, as we read in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you give your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. That I'm going to lay down my life in faith that I might honor him in what I do and in what I say. As Paul expands his exhortation from just sexual immorality to a broader discussion of lust and desire, it's going to encompass every aspect of life. You notice that he said here that we should know how to possess it in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. Right? Lust is a is a sin is a desire for something that is uh, ultimately replacing our desire to honor the Lord. And concupiscence simply means uh, inappropriate desire. So it's almost a superfluous term, but. But here it is. It's an inappropriate or sinful desire that we would yield ourselves to. That we would abstain, that we would choose to do these things, that we would possess our bodies, ourself, not as we used to. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, there's this whole discussion, and Paul says that we... Uh, we haven't learned these things from Christ. You have not so learned Christ. 
And he talks about the Gentiles and he says that they, in the, in the vanity of their minds, they have yielded themselves and built these things up. And this is the way they conducted themselves. But you have not so learned Christ. This is how you live. That these things that were named amongst you in the past should no longer be named amongst you. That your life is different. Those things were unholy. They were unrepresentative of Christ. Yet here you are now filled with the Spirit as his temple, as his representative we by faith yield ourselves as living sacrifices to those things that are consistent with his, with his command, with his will, with his ways. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the term Christian simply means little Christ. That's, I mean, in a very literal sense, that's what it means. What everybody understood back in the founding of the church, back in its early days, as we read it here in the scripture, both those who are inside and outside, is that they were pictures to the world around them of Christ. And what the world outside realized is that everyone that we see here that is naming the name of Christ is somehow representative of, of what Christ is, who he is, what he taught, all of those things. Little Christ, that's what that's what the term means, and that's exactly what it means. It's a discussion about their discipleship. And in Romans chapter 13, we have this idea that we are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are covered in him, not only in his righteousness, which is absolutely true, that's our justification, but when the world looks at us, that's what they're seeing or what they should be seeing. And there may be moments in our life where we want to put off the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's because I fear persecution, like we talked about last week, whether it's because there's expected hardship, because it has become taboo in society and culture to to remain covered in Christ and to stand firm in that truth. Whatever the reason may be, there are times when we are tempted to unshoulder that, to, to put Christ off and not represent. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of, God, of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And then as he goes on, there's some very specific instruction to husbands and to wives, to children, uh, and and to to fathers, to servants, and to masters, just like we talked about last Tuesday in Ephesians. 
It's a parallel passage. Here it is, that there are things that we put off because they're not representative. And here are things that we are told to put on. That if I'm going to keep Christ over me and represent him well, these are characteristics and traits that we would pursue. That the Spirit would bear in us and that we would yield ourselves to. That we might walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, as we read in Galatians chapter 5. Now we realize that there are things here, just from the very context, from the very reading of it, that we are engaged in. It is something that God is bringing about in us as he is conforming us. It is his predetermined plan to mold us into the image of Christ. But we participate in that. We engage with it. Like I said, by faith, I'm going to choose to not retaliate. I'm going to choose to uh, have mercy, that I'm going to choose to be humble. Whatever it may be, these characteristics that are listed here, by faith, I'm going to walk in those things. To represent Christ. Now, obviously, as we we're talking about things that we put on, things that we do, there are definitely things that we don't do, and that's the that's the way that Paul is approaching it in Thessalonians. That we would abstain from these lusts of our of our concupiscence, of our evil desires. We put those things off, and that's hard to do because our natural inclination is to do those very things. We're working against our own nature in many respects. The good news is that for you and I, as believers, we don't have, excuse me, we're not left helpless. We have grace. We have more than enough grace. His grace is sufficient for us. It's enough to carry us through. It's enough to help us overcome those desires and those kinds of things that we work against. Are we going to be perfect? Absolutely not. I don't think that that's in every... In, there's no sinless perfection in this life. However, what is the practice? What is the consistency? Am I consistently striving against and, and relatively consistently representing Christ? Or am I very inconsistent in that? Is, the, is it 50-50 or is it 20-70? Wherever it may be, there is probably room for improvement. And that's a yielding further of ourselves to Christ, a walking in obedience. And it's also a pursuit of those things. I would submit to you that the way we pursue those is, I don't know if it's first or second, so ignore the order, but first in prayer, here's Christ, or excuse me, here is the Lord who is indwelling us in the Holy Spirit. Lord, what are areas that I need to work on? How am I consistent and how am I inconsistent? What areas, God, do I need your grace in. And I'm convinced that that is a prayer that is consistent with God's will for us, and he will hear it and he will answer it. Sometimes it may be hard to hear. Might be an area that I think I'm doing relatively good in, and I am not. I'm failing the Lord in it. Secondly, you need to be engaged in the Word. If the Word of God is, in fact, the very inspired, God-breathed Scripture, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says in that following verse, verse 17, that it is profitable, that it is useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished and all good works. It becomes foundational in our understanding, uh, excuse me, in our development as Christians. 
There's a reason that I push so hard on the Word of God. Now, Paul doesn't leave it here. Uh, he, he talks about this as he goes on. He says in verses uh, verse 6, so we are uh, talking about the sanctification in general, this personal holiness uh, in general. We have uh, sexual immorality is something that we're abstaining from, but we're also abstaining from any lust that is of our evil desire or inappropriate desire. But he goes on in verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. So this idea of, de of going beyond, in other words, that there's this overreach, this taking advantage of. And not only that, but they would defraud or the, uh, they would, uh, well, we all understand what fraud is, right? And we're, we're going to look at an example or two here in just a moment. But he doesn't leave it at just this there. He says, in any matter. There should be a consistency in the way that we conduct ourselves that we wouldn't take advantage in any way. At least not knowingly. In Exodus chapter 20, turn there with me, like I said, uh, just a couple of examples from the nation of Israel and God's commands to them. Exodus chapter 20, what happens in Exodus chapter 20? Does anybody know what we're given there? Ten Commandments, that's right. We get the Ten Commandments. And God would sum, sum of this up in, 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 in these Ten Commandments. Obviously, they're, they're hitting these high points that we're talking about. But he says in verse 15, simply put, I don't, no, no will room, thou shalt not steal. Right? I'm not going to take advantage of, uh, so, so I might just come to your house and take your stuff. That's stealing, obviously. But if I run a business and I choose to tinker with, say, I run a gas station and my pumps run a little fast. So you get 10 gallons, you get charged for 10 gallons, but you really only got nine and a half. That's stealing. That's the same perspective in God's mind. And in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, if, you'll, if you'll turn there with me, God addresses that specifically. He talks about the abomination uh, unjust weights are an abomination uh, in, in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere, but he, he talks about that, right? Anybody who would run their pumps crooked like that is in literally in direct violation of God's word. But I just use that to illustrate that stealing, it might be something larger than we realize, right? Just because I can sell something for an inflated price doesn't necessarily mean that I should. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'm taking advantage necessarily either, but you get my point, right? We're, we're, we want to walk honestly before the Lord, clear conscience. Owe no man anything, as we read in Romans 13, except a debt of love. In Leviticus chapter 25, as God is talking about the years of Jubilee, you'll remember that every seventh year they take a break. It's You just let the crops and the ground rest. You get to glean whatever there is in those harvests. And then every uh, seventh Jubilee, following that year would be the, the year of 50, which is a special jubilee. Uh, and you, again, you get a break. The land gets a break. But in that 50th year, what happens is that if you've bought property, because God said, listen, by inheritance, these tribes are going to get these lands. If you've bought property, you're going to give it back. But that's the way that it is. And so in these verses, let's read verses 13 through 17. 
in this in the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. But you're getting your your property back. And this, this is talking about the land. This is not talking about anything. If I sold you a car, I'm not getting that back, right? The land is specifically. Um, verse 14, and if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, he shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according to the number of years, the fruits he shall sell it unto thee. According to the multitude of years, thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of years, thou shalt diminish the price of it, for according to the number of the years of the fruits does he sell unto you. You shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, if it's the 48th year, I don't charge 50 years worth of, of rent effectively. I charge two years. I charge a year because really in the 48th year, you only get one year. The next year's jubilee, the ground rests. The second year is going to be the 50th jubilee and the ground rests again. But if it's the first year, I can charge you for all of those years, excluding the seven years of jubilee that nobody can farm. Nobody's making an income off of those. So I don't charge you for those years, right? We see that we're just being fair in our dealings. We're not taking advantage in any matter. doesn't matter what it is. Now, I realize we're talking about commerce here, and that's that's only one facet of what's being discussed. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, now there is there, now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, so do we ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Right, so here's here's the issue, right? We have these Christians within the church of Corinth that are suing one another for and I don't know what, we don't know, but you're going at law against it. That's what, what it means. I'm going to, I'm going to sue you. Uh, whether you found out that maybe they had unjust scales, maybe they were taking advantage, maybe their pumps were running fast, uh, who, who knows, whatever it may be, whether it's commerce or, or anything else, you have been defrauded. You've been taken advantage of. And so you're suing your brother. And what does Paul say? He's like, this is wrong. We shouldn't do that. You are defrauding. You're going above and beyond. I mean, you, you look at these, these lawsuits today, right, where, <laughs> you know, somebody looked at you wrong, and so I'm going to sue you for, you know, three or four million dollars because, you know, I have emotional damage. I, that's just defrauding. That's taking advantage of the culture and the society that we live in. Now, this could be anything. He, he says we don't defraud each other. We don't take advantage in any matter. Right? You borrow your neighbor's lawnmower and you just never take it back. Listen, I've been guilty of this. I try not to borrow tools anymore because I'm really bad at returning them. It's never intentional. But I just know that I'm not good at it. So I'm not going to take advantage of somebody's generosity and letting me borrow their tools anymore because I just feel bad about it. It's I'm defrauding them. That's just the way that it is. 
But did you notice that what Paul said there in Corinthians? He said, listen, it would be better that you were defrauded, that you just put up with it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to keep going to that guy's gas pump, right? But, it, but for the sake of the witness of the body of Christ, this has nothing to do with us personally. This is for the glory and the honor of who God is. The authenticity of the gospel. It's a, it's a preservation of those things. Now, if it if it needs to be public, it needs to be public, right? That we we need to bring these things out. We're not trying to hide or or deceive anybody in those regards. We need to call sin sin wherever we find it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in any matter, we're going to abstain. We're going to choose not to yield to the lust of our inappropriate affections, whatever they may be. We're not going to go beyond. We're not going to overreach, and we're not going to take advantage or defraud our brothers in any matter. Maybe it's a personal offense. Maybe it's something, whatever it may be, there's this principle of turning the other cheek that I mentioned earlier. It's personal. It's against you. You get to now operate in a way that is consistent with what Christ has done in forgiving, even while they sinned against you. Knowing full well, as we read here, and as Paul warned the Thessalonian church, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, and as also we have forewarned you and testified. And we understand, uh, for example, in Proverbs 22, going back to those examples of, uh, of commerce and those things, uh, that we find in the Old Testament that illustrate this principle. Proverbs 22, uh, verses 22 and 23. Rob not the poor because he is poor, neither oppress the afflicted in the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and spoil of the soul, the soul of those that spoiled them. Right? God is watching out for and taking care of. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Avenge not yourself, for we understand, we know that vengeance is God's. He will repay. And if we turn there to Romans chapter 12, for example, and we, we continue to look on there, we're given some further instruction in how we might respond to those who would wrong us. He says in, in Romans 12, uh, verse beginning in verse 20, Therefore, knowing that God is the avenger, knowing that he is taking care of all those things, that he is perfectly just. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul expands his exhortation to personal holiness. And in so doing, he includes this, this catch-all, as it were, of any matter. That in everything that we do, in every conduct, in every opportunity, in our dealings with people, we're going to be those who are honest and forthright and representative of Christ. In verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now, in many respects, this is a summary, this is where we're going to end this morning, a summary of everything that Paul has talked about so far. So we are called for, uh, he's not called us unto uncleanness. right? We, we, we understand, those who have come to faith, we understand that we are called out of uncleanness. 
We are called out of sinfulness. But we are called unto holiness. The purpose of our lives as believers is to represent Christ. When we talk about the general and the specific will of God, everybody has a specific will, something that he's called you to. But in general, right, the Great Commission for all believers, we're commissioned, we're commanded by Jesus to make disciples, to share the gospel. Not only that, we as all believers, one of the general wills of God for you and I would be that we would represent him clearly. That we would live lives consistent with the purpose for which he has saved us. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter uh, 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, he uses the illustration of light and being a city set on a hill and all those things. I've lit you that you might have a clear effect on those that are around you. Don't hide under a bushel. Don't take off Christ, as it were, and put on these other things like the Gentiles who used to walk, you used to walk this way, but no, there should be a difference today. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are, we were already there, but let me read it again. 1 Peter 1, 16, because as is written, be holy, for I am holy. We would represent him. I want to go back to Exodus chapter 20, back to the Ten Commandments, just by way of conclusion this morning, because, uh, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's a good opportunity to remind us. In Exodus chapter 20, amongst the Ten Commandments, we find this one that is usually interpreted as blasphemy, as taking the name of God in vain, and, and using it, speaking it in a, in a curse, or which I think it, is, it definitely encapsulates that. But I think it's a lot bigger than that. He says in, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, thou shalt, take, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That the Jews, you remember, uh, because they were so concerned about this, they removed uh, in, their, in their transcription and their copying of Scripture, they removed the vowels from the name of God so that they could never blaspheme, couldn't pronounce it. It was an unpronounceable name. And so today it's either Yahweh or Jehovah, however you prefer to say it. It could be either one by the di difference by the, the vowels that are. And, and it's interesting because as you study through history of Christianity, it's gone back and forth about what should be the acceptable pronunciation and all those things. I don't know that it matters. I mean, it's important. It is the name of God that he gave us. But I think that he knows if we're talking to him. The Jews were so zealous about that. They removed the vow so you couldn't you couldn't speak it. But I think that what God is intending here is somewhat more than that. Not only that we wouldn't use his name wrongly, but that we wouldn't take it on us without the intention to live it. We'll remember as we study through Galatians and, and, and even in the Romans chapter 8, there's this idea that we're adopted into the family of God. That we literally take his name and are now known as his child. And so for you and I, right, there's this idea that when, because the world looks at us and they understand to whatever degree, whether it's right or wrong, that, that they are looking at a representative of Christ, a member of his family, somebody that actually bears his name and should therefore be able to represent him to me in a way that is 
accurate and representative of who he is and what he's done and everything that he's revealed. Yet there are those who will name the name of Christ and there is zero change in their life. They've taken the name of God, right? I, I want to be, quote unquote, understood as being adopted. I'm in the family. But that doesn't mean that I live consistently with that. They would be a son or a daughter of God if they are, in fact, born again, who would bring shame upon the name of God and misrepresent him. They would somehow convey to the world around them that this lifestyle that we hold that is sinful by God's own declaration is somehow acceptable. They've taken the name of God in vain, without worth, without ascribing any holiness to it, without ascribing any, any honor to who they are now identified with. And for you and I as believers, that is exactly what we've done. We've taken that name of God. We've been clothed in his righteousness. We are now his representatives, his ambassadors, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If we take God's name in vain, not only may we be speaking it in that way, but we may be living in a way that would deny who he is. That's the bigger sin here. Bigger, quote-unquote, sin. I think that's what God is getting at here, and I think that's what Paul is talking about. That we would not take God's name in vain. That when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are adopted into that family of God, that we understand that as he wrote in Romans 6, we're not yielding ourselves to sin anymore, but we're yielding ourselves to righteousness. We're submitting by faith to the things that God has said are right and true and bending off and denying, choosing not to, abstaining from those things that are sin and wrong. So the world around us may see a clear-cut picture that there is a line in the sand, that there is a clear difference. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be in your word. Lord, that you might, by your Holy Spirit, sow conviction through the understanding of your word. And Lord, as we uh, take time to look at the things that Paul is exhorting and beseeching, begging, pleading with the, the church of the Thessalonians, Lord, to engage in and to not engage in, we understand, God, that there is an instruction for us as disciples of Christ as his followers, Lord, that this is applicable to us. God, I pray that we would all have your grace, that we might see those areas that we need to uh, allow your hand to conform us to the image of Christ, that you would expose, Lord, within us those areas that we have withheld something, or that we have not seen it and understood it in the way that you are, Lord, that we would acknowledge those things that we would choose to hold on to, though they may be a stumbling block. And God, may you, by your grace, help us to work through and overcome those things. Help us, Lord, to be those who would abstain, to choose not to. And Lord, on the other side of that, help us to be those, by your grace, who would choose to put on Christ, put on meekness and humbleness and love, those things that we are commanded throughout the New Testament to embrace as characteristics consistent with our profession of faith. May, Lord, everyone here be those who represent you well. And God, may you help us by your grace when we have sinned, when we have fallen, to be those who will, uh, in humbleness, 
and in interest of preserving your name, confess that we would own our sin and our hypocrisy. We praise you, Lord, for your spirit. We praise you for your word, and Lord, we praise you most of all for your son. It's in his name, Lord, that we give thanks and that we pray these things. Amen.